few Christmases ago, there was a daughter and her father, and she was a preschool student, and she saw all these decorations in the community and saw their Christmas tree at home, and she said to her father, Dad, why do we do all of this? And he started to explain about Santa Claus and gifts and all that sort of stuff, and she said, yeah, but I heard someone at school talk about someone named Jesus. He said, oh, well, that is actually the reason for the season. They didn't go to church, but he decided that since she asked questions, he would try to answer them. So he went to Amazon.com and ordered a children's Bible, he himself having never read it before, and decided that every night he would read her stories about this guy named Jesus. And the more he read to her, the more she loved it. They read the stories of Jesus' birth and his teachings, and the daughter would ask her father to explain some of these things like, do unto other as you would have them do unto you. Dad, what does that mean? And the father would say, well, it means that Jesus says we're supposed to treat people the way we want to be treated. And with every story, she wanted to know more and more and more. And so a few weeks later, after Christmas had come and gone, they were driving in the neighborhood, and they saw a Catholic church, and on the front lawn of the Catholic church was an enormous crucifix upon which there was a man hanging. And so as they were driving by, the daughter said, Hey, Dad, who's that? And he realized he hadn't told her the end of the story. So he began to explain how the person on the cross was, in fact, Jesus the same person they had been learning about from the children's Bible, how he ran afoul of the Roman government, and because his message was so radical, the people thought the only way to stop him was to kill him. So they did. And the daughter was silent for the rest of the ride home. A few weeks later, toward the end of January, the daughter had the day off school in celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. And so the father decided to take the day off as well and treat his daughter to breakfast, they got in the car and they drove to a restaurant and there sitting waiting for their pancakes there was a newspaper and on the front page of the newspaper was a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. And the daughter saw it and she said, Dad, who's that? He said, well, that's uh, Martin Luther King Jr. He's the reason you're not in school today. We're celebrating his life. He was a preacher. She said, for Jesus? He said, yeah, for Jesus. He said, uh, but there was another thing he was famous for. He, he believed that um, we should treat people the same no matter what they look like. And the daughter said, oh, yeah, that's like Jesus said. Treat, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He said, oh, I, I'd never really thought about it like that. But, yeah, it is just like what Jesus said. And then the daughter got very quiet. And she looked at the newspaper, and then she looked at her father, and she said, Dad, did they kill him too? Did they kill him too? Our scripture today comes from the book of Hebrews. It is page 224 in your pew Bibles, if you would like to follow along. It's chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Hear now God's holy word. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are the, those offered according to the law. 
Then he added, See, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Consequently is a rather interesting word to start a section of Scripture. It's like beginning with the word therefore. Whenever we read therefore, we need to know what the therefore is there for. So if we flip back just one verse, if you're still open to page 224 in the New Testament, you can read, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, or consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings are not desired, but only the body of the one who comes to do the will of God. Contrary to how we might feel on Good Friday, with Easter looming on the horizon, today is actually the most expectant worship service in the year. Of course, Jesus predicted his passion and his death and his resurrection no less than three times, but no one seemed to believe him. His disciples, his followers, they all betray him, abandon him, deny him. But today, we are firmly rooted in the time of the already but the not yet. It is the final Sunday of Advent. Everything about our worship, the songs, the scripture, the sermon, they're all saturated with a sense that something uniquely impossible is about to take place. For centuries, the people of God were waiting for something. That something took on different shapes and sizes and expectations. The something had a name, Messiah, the Holy One, from the righteous branch of David, the one born to set us free. I think freedom is good. But it's important for us to think, freedom from what? Is it freedom from tyranny, freedom from fear, freedom from judgment, or is it the freedom from sin and death? There have been a lot of, a lot of figures throughout history who have come to bring freedom, but the freedom from the greatest enemies of sin and death is only possible if the one born to Mary also happens to be God in the flesh. In church circles, we call this incarnation. Now, it's not yet Christmas, but here on the final Sunday of Advent, we straddle these two worlds, these two times, and from this vantage point, we can't help but ask ourselves, what child is this? And great hymn, what child is this? And everything we do as a church is our way of trying to answer that question. Was Jesus like God? Was Jesus a prophet of God? Was Jesus just a good teacher? Did he just want us to get along with each other? The fundamental Christian proclamation is that Jesus is not like God. Jesus is God. Light from light eternal. And now everything that we do depends on that being true. Otherwise, the nativity story is just another tale of no real importance. So that's the challenge that we have before us today. The child that we worship on Christmas is, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, the very body that is sacrificed for us. Years ago on Christmas Eve, I made the ill-advised decision that during the children's message, I decided to not warn anybody in the congregation of what I was about to do, but I found someone that I loved in the church. I said something like, hey, Robert, I need you to come forward. And all the kids were gathered up, and I put a blanket over this man from the church, and I pretended that he was baby Jesus. And I said, and what does a baby say, Robert? And this poor man is like, wah, wah. 
And I told the kids about baby Jesus, but the whole point was I, I removed the blanket and I put on a robe. And I told the whole story of his life. And then I ended with the cross and I had an usher turn out all the lights in the sanctuary. And I said, we can never forget that the baby we worship in the manger grows to be the one we hang on the cross. Now that's true, but that is not what people want to hear on Christmas Eve. I made a big mistake that Christmas Eve. But this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. You all are the diehards. You're ready to hear this difficult word. We don't talk much about sacrifice in the church these days, even though our hymnal is full of the bloody hymns. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's kind of hard to sing that one with a smile on your face. And if we do sing those songs, we usually save them for the season of Lent when we're supposed to feel bad about our badness. But it's almost Christmas Eve. We don't want to think about blood. We don't want to think about sacrifice. We are definitely ready for that cute little baby to be born for us in the manger. It is another thing entirely to come to grips with the fact that that baby grows to be the one we nail on the cross. But if we ignore the language of sacrifice, the shadow of the cross that is in the manger, then we deny the strange truth of the Bible. In the ancient world, sacrifice was part of all religious practice. Now, Israel might stand apart in the fact that the God of Abraham did not require human sacrifice, though there was that one little incident with Isaac, but we'll save that for another sermon, another time. There are plenty of sacrifices expected by and through the law for the people of God. Because to sacrifice is to admit that there is a need for us to do so. The only way to be holy is to remove sin altogether, and no one can do that on their own. Sacrifice, therefore, was offered on behalf of God's people in order to be made right. But over time, the sacrifices started to be empty, empty signs of an empty faith. Again and again, the prophets of God reject the blood spilled of animals when injustice continues to reign. Or in other words, what good is it to sacrifice a bull or a goat when widows and orphans and the outcasts are being ignored? Therefore, the writer of Hebrews puts it, Jesus' death is a single offering for all time for those who are sanctified. There is no holiness without sacrifice. In fact, the very meaning of the word sacrifice is to make holy. Now, of course, we're Methodists. It's 2021. A lot of us don't think that we need any sacrifice anymore, that we are beyond sacrifice, but that only betrays how essential it is to our lives. We sacrifice land and animals that we might live. We make sacrifices in the name of love that we feel for other people. We sacrifice those who serve in our militaries so that we might feel safe. Sacrificing is part of who we are. And we do so because we often think it is the only way we can make up for the wrongs that we have done. Now that feeling of guilt, the knowledge of what we've done, what we have left undone, important as it may be, it is a contradiction to the work of Christ that is offered as a single sacrifice forever and ever. There's an unbelievable story of something that happened on Christmas Eve a little more than 100 years ago, and maybe some of you have heard about it, and if not, I'm so glad that I get to share it with you. It took place in and among the trenches of World War I in the year 1914. All along the Western Front, there were these unofficial ceasefires to observe Christmas. Some of it, though, was due to the fact that a lot of them no longer had ammunition because of the holiday. But nevertheless, they agreed, for this short period, we'd halt the war. 
Now, halting a war was nothing special. This is something we've done since the beginning of our fighting, taking time to remove the dead from the battlefield, to have new supplies. This is something we've always done. But what happened in 1914, it boggles the mind. Because in certain areas along the trenches, soldiers left the safety of their barricades and they met in the middle of no man's land to celebrate Christmas with each other. There's a story that in one area, uh, soldiers heard the ringing of church bells in the distance, and it gave them the courage to bravely enter to this disputed space between their trenches. In other places, soldiers saw Christmas trees on either end of the trenches decorated, and they ventured for a closer look. But my favorite story, my very favorite story, is that a group of German soldiers were singing, Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Silent Night, Holy Night. And when they came to the end of one of the verses, they stopped, they heard the English soldiers on the other end of the trench singing the same song. And so they left their trenches and they met in the middle and celebrated Christmas. We have all these remarkable letters that soldiers sent home about how they had gone back to their, their trenches and they were smoking their pipes, but the tobacco was from the Germans on the other side. How some of them got to have a cigarette for the first time in what felt like years because someone on the other side gave it to them. Now, it sounds like it's too good to be true, but all the best stories are like that. These soldiers expected a total surprise on Christmas Eve. They exchanged gifts and food and songs. There are even stories that football, that is soccer matches, took place where they would take a leather coat and try to wrap it up into a ball and they'd kick it around and play with each other. Now one soldier wrote to his family after the fact that they returned to the respective sides after celebrating and on Christmas morning they woke up to a dead silence, the first silence they could remember hearing during the war, that both sides shouted Merry Christmas back and forth to each other but no one felt particularly merry anymore because the silence ended that afternoon and the killing started again. He said it was a short peace in a terrible war. Sacrifices were made in the name of peace just hours after they were singing about the dawn of redeeming grace in silent night. That scripture we're told again and again what we must do, what we mustn't do, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. And if thou hast done something, this is how thou shalt atone for what thou hast done. It's the law. But the primary function of the law, Jesus says in John 5, Paul says in Romans 3, is to accuse us. The law exists to show us who we are in relation to the law, that we are all sinners. The law reveals our complete and total righteousness that we require to acquire the kingdom of heaven how we might be blameless and justified before we meet the Holy One of Israel. The only problem is none of us can do it. We can sing Silent Night in the middle of World War I, but it's only a few hours before we pick up our rifles and we start to shoot again. We are all on the naughty list this year and every year. We delude ourselves. We self-rationalize all sorts of behavior. We feel like we can justify just about everything so long as we feel like we're growing closer to God. But the truth is, we're actually getting farther and farther away from God, but God is hell-bent on finding us. Finding us in the bushes of life that we constantly hide ourselves in. 
Contrary to how we so often talk about it, the law doesn't bring us up to the mountaintop of God's domain. The law brings us on our knees. Or to put it another way, the law gets us to see ourselves with enough clarity that we can ask the question, how in the world could God love somebody like me? Ask that question and you are not far from the kingdom of God. We're talking about the atonement, what's actually done by Jesus on the cross. And there are all sorts of theories about the cross. We, we owed a debt to God via our sins and Jesus paid it all. The death of Jesus satisfied God's wrathful anger about us. It's all the kind of things that people like me debated in seminary basements. There's a guy named Gerhard Forday, a Lutheran theologian, who got rid of all of those theories. And he said that the cross is simply us being caught up in a murder. He argues that any theory of the atonement that tidily explains the death of God's Son it pales next to the great good news that the one we tried to do away with on the cross speaks a surprising word of reconciliation in the resurrection. When the incarnate God, God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, comes to us, we nail him on the cross, and then three days later, God gives him back to us. Which is just another way of saying, hear the good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That proves God's love toward us. And perhaps that's why churches across the world will read these words <clears throat> from the letter of Hebrews just shy of Christmas Eve because they forever and always declare the very same thing declared in the resurrection and in the incarnation. God is for us. There is therefore literally nothing on earth, nothing in heaven that can ever separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because it's in the full knowledge of our sins, past, present, future, our propensity toward violence, even against those who worship the same baby in the manger, God joined our life to be life for us, becomes one of us to free us from the attempt to be more than we were ever created to be. Jesus arrives, fully God, fully human, down in our miserable estate, in the muck and in the mire, is obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, to end forever any sacrifice not determined by his cross. Consequently, Christmas comes with a cost. The baby born for us is also the God who dies for us. God is the dawn of redeeming grace. God is our peace. God is the one who sanctifies us. Which is why we can sing the great words from Charles Wesley. Come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever.